This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 26, 1994. China Airlines Flight 140, an Airbus A300 with 271 people on board, is on approach to Nagoya, Japan after a two and a half hour flight from Taipei, Taiwan. The captain is letting the first officer land the plane in order to help build his experience with the aircraft. In the final stages of landing, the first officer disengages the autopilot in order to hand fly the plane into its landing. The first officer struggles to bring the nose of the plane down as the captain continues to tell him to nose down. The captain takes over and realizes he can't nose the plane down either. The crew increases thrust to initiate a go around, but the plane begins to pitch up uncontrollably. The plane slams into the ground just to the right of the runway and erupts in flames, killing all but seven people on board. What happened to China Airlines Flight 140 that caused this accident? Find out in this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. We're back with another episode. You know what you should do? You should remind people about uh, our social media. Thank you. I had a brain fart there for a minute. I was like, <laughs> what do I normally do here? Uh, yeah, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. It's been a little bit of a busy morning, Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We uh, post, you know, photos, uh, supplemental links and information that maybe uh, if you're curious about a little more about what we talk about, it's a great way to find out a little more about the incidents we talk about. Uh, you can also check out we have a premium experience. If you go to the website, blackboxdownpod.com, uh, you can learn all about it for $2.99 a month. You get the episodes uh, early and you get an ad-free experience when you listen to them. And you can keep listening in whatever podcast platform you're already listening to the podcast in. You can also directly do it in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, I think. Uh, you probably see the buttons on those platforms. It helps us. It just really, if you like the show, it really does help us uh, make it. And so please consider supporting us. It's a way to directly support the production of this podcast. Yeah. Back to the episode, we're talking today about China Airlines Flight 140. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this passenger flight from Taipei, Taiwan to Nagoya, Japan on April 26th, 1994. I didn't know where Nagoya was. I had to look at a, I had to look at a map for this one. Like I've been to Japan a few times. I've never been to Nagoya. It's uh, mm -hmm. like east of Osaka, like in southwest of Tokyo, if you're curious. <laughs> I, I, I was. I had to look it up. <laughs> the flight was crewed by Captain Wang Lochi, who was 42 years old with 8,340 flight hours, and First Officer Chong Meng Jung, who was 26 with 1,624 flight hours, and the aircraft was an Airbus A300 with 8,572 hours, and there were 13 flight attendants and 256 passengers on board. The flight took off from Taipei at 8.53 a.m. universal time, Okay. And climbed to flight level 330, which is 33,000 feet. I heard you say okay to the time. I want to clarify. So it was 8.53 a.m. universal time, which is 5.53 p.m. Japan standard time. Okay. So universal evening. time, it's the morning, <laughs> but this is actually an evening flight. The estimated time in route was two hours and 18 minutes. And I know we say this all the time, uneventful flight. Everything uh -huh. yeah. was was totally normal. Well, it sounds like it because the captain was like, oh, uh, this is a good opportunity for you to get more experience with this plane. You should land it, you know, like, yeah. And that's a common thing. I, you yeah. know, I, we've talked about that before, you know, they'll, uh, the, the captain and first officer will, will share duties like that. And this is a, a good, like you said, a good opportunity for a more experienced pilot to let a more junior pilot, you know, get literal hands-on experience at 1047 universal time. The flight made an initial descent from 33,000 feet to 21,000 feet, with the first officer, like you said, you know, the one who was flying the plane, he was, you know, in mm -hmm. control. The captain and first officer then started to brief on the approach and the landing, and they continued to descend. And at 11.07, they were cleared for an ILS approach to runway 34. 
At 11.11, the first officer disengaged the autopilot and started flying the ILS by hand. And a couple of minutes later, they were cleared to land. So he's just like, the autopilot's not locked on to the glide slope. You know, he's hand flying the plane, mm-hmm. which is common. Happens all the time. The ILS helps, like, tell him how to line up to come in for the landing. And so they start landing from 10.47 to 11.11, and they have no issues, right? Correct. Yeah. And at, like I said, 11.11 is when they disengage the autopilot. And yeah, still, everything's fine. No, no problems. At 11.14, while at an altitude, so now they're at an altitude of about 1,070 feet. So they're really close to landing uh-huh. at this point. The first officer, he accidentally triggered the go lever. And we've talked about this. Uh, it's like the to put the plane into go around mode. It's like if you're not going to land and you decide to abort the landing, oh. uh, when you do a go yeah. around, it's like you give, you, know, you give it a lot of thrust and you start climbing out to pull away from the, the airport. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. How did he accidentally do it? The way on this A300, there's, you know, I'm sure if you picture a cockpit and you picture the throttles, it's like the the levers that are mm-hmm. between the two pilots, right? Kind of like they reach over with one hand and, you know, they move and they move it forward to increase thrust. They move it back to decrease thrust. If you put your hand on that and then you like extend your fingers a little bit, there's like a second little catch in front of the, the throttle. And if you pull on that, it's like a little trigger up in the front of the throttles that puts it into go-around mode. Okay. and So he he probably reached out to adjust the throttle, reached a little too far, and pulled those triggers. So he pulls those triggers by accident, and the aircraft goes into go-around mode, You know, and automatically the thrust starts to increase, like we talked Uh about. That's what happens in a go-around. And the captain notices, and he tells the first officer that he triggered the go-lever and told him to disengage it. Uh Uh, The flight leveled off at 1,040 feet for about 15 seconds while they're at about three nautical miles from the runway threshold. The captain told the first officer to correct their descent path because now they were too high. Because, you know, yeah. when they increase the thrust, lift increases, and, you know, they're supposed to be coming down yeah. to land. And when the thrust increased, you know, they, they stopped their descent, so now they're too high. Uh, as in response to this, the first officer applied a nose-down elevator input and gradually got back onto the normal glide path. But did they, he never disengaged the go-around? While this happened, the captain then told the first officer twice that they were still in go-around mode. So yeah, he didn't, the first officer did not disengage it. It was still in go-around mode. Oh. At 1115, they passed through 510 feet, and the first officer told the captain that the thrust had been latched. The captain then took over the controls, and when he did, the thrust levers had moved forward and started to bring them back into like a slight climb. Mm-hmm. The elevator was also close to its maximum nose-down limit when the captain took over. A few seconds later, the captain called out for the go lever, and the thrust levers were moved forward again, and they began to climb. So at this point... They're initiating an actual go around, not an accident, but like, yeah. you know, the captain calls, you know, he takes over, calls for, you know, the go lever and they begin uh, a climb. They begin an actual go around. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, they were like, uh, they got too far, too high up, right. too close something, to landing. Something's wrong. It's not yeah. a stabilized approach. Go around. The first officer contacted Nagoya Tower and said they were going to do a go around. Six seconds after the go around was initiated, the ground proximity warning system activated and said glide slope once and then the stall warning horn sounded for about two seconds. At 11.15 and 31 seconds, which is 20 seconds after the go-around was initiated, uh-huh. the flight reached an altitude of 1,730 feet, and then the aircraft lowered its nose and began to dive. Ooh. The ground proximity warning system started saying terrain, terrain, and the stall warning sounded again. And at 11.15 and 45 seconds, the aircraft crashed onto airport property to the right of the landing zone for runway 34. 16 of the passengers were taken to the hospital, but six of them had passed by the time they arrived, oh, and three more passengers passed away over the next several days, leaving only seven survivors out of 271 people on board. That it's it, it's always 
particularly depressing when it seems like they're they're at they're they're landing and nothing is seemingly wrong. It like it they're so close. Right. I mean the the plane even like I said it crashes on airport property like it crashed just to the right of the runway. You know mm. they were they were close. Did they, had they had this go around? But you know from what you can tell at this point, obviously something went wrong. Stall horns going off. Probably a stall. Like you know there's. There's no uh-huh. seemingly no reason for it. They were yeah. just about to land. Was there some like miscommunication with the go around where like whenever he switched over, he had disengaged the, the go around switch so that then when the like the captain took over, he thought it was on or right. It seems like that's where the confusion is, right? Uh-huh. That's that seems like right now the most likely cause for this. Based on what we've talked about, that definitely seems that would be w- what I would be guessing at this point as well. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, the the question becomes at this point, like if you're wondering about the go around without like I'm, I'm I'm trying to talk about it only based on what we've talked about, not yeah. you know, no not speculate or not talking about what I already know about this. Yeah. It would be like, well, if they initiated a go around, why did they stall? You know, it mm-hmm. in theory, you know, if you're doing a go around, you should have a lot of thrust and you should be able to climb without any issue. You know, what was it about the climb that seemingly led to a stall? would be the thing I would be wondering at this point. Yeah. So this accident was investigated by the Accident Investigation Commission of Japan, and they determined that the first officer seemed to have mistaken the go lever for the autothrottle disconnect push button in an attempt to change the autothrottle system to manual thrust, or that he tried to move the thrust levers back and triggered that go lever accidentally. This is one of those times where, like I mentioned, social media, we'll po- I'll post a photo of what this looks like uh-huh. on our social media so you can, you can see for yourself how this happens and how someone could inadvertently trigger this. So like I said, the go lever on this aircraft is positioned below the thrust lever knob and it's operated by moving it in the same direction that the thrust lever moves when you reduce thrust. So pulling back, you you know, grab mm-hmm. it and like squeeze it, pull it back. So with this arrangement, the possibility exists for an inadvertent activation of the go lever during normal operation of the thrust levers. And like we said, in response to this, the captain said, disengage it. But the investigators found this to be ambiguous. Because he said, disengage it. Oh. Does it mean the auto throttle or uh-huh. does it mean go around mode? Like there was no clear direction. It most likely refers to go around mode. But a few seconds later, the captain said that. And the first officer responded by saying, I, but investigators don't know what this means either. There's no yeah. clear communication, mm-hmm. you know, God, and this is awful. We've talked about this a lot, but language can be ambiguous sometimes if you're not very clear about it. It's just, it's at that point, that seems like miscommunication. Yeah, de- well, definitely. I, would you, I mean, they're fully trained, but they're still green, right? Only right, th- yeah. a thousand hours, that's, that seems low. Uh, 1,624 hours. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty low, but I mean, that's still a lot of time flying. Sure, yeah, yeah. I just mean like compared to some of the pilots that we've talked about. Like, Yeah, for sure. So if you think about it this way. Let, let's say let's say you work 40 hours in a week, right? Like that's uh-huh. like what people consider a typical work week. And this guy had flown 1,000 or the first officer had flown 1,624 flight hours. That's the equivalent of spending 40 and a half weeks in the air. That's a lot. That's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. That's <laughs> 40 and a half hours, uh, 40 and a half weeks in flying. the air flying. Yeah. Yeah. Like not, not just not, in not the training. air. Yeah. Right. That is in the air. So that's, that's a lot of time. Anyway, going back to this ambiguity in language. Uh, you know, like I said, the captain saying it and that, first officer saying I. The investigators think that this could either mean that either one, the captain instructed the first officer to engage the autopilots, two, 
The captain said this because his instructions seconds before was not followed and he was repeating it. Or three, the captain's word did not represent an instruction and the first officer just gave a generic response. Immediately after the captain gave the that instruction, autopilots were engaged, but there was no verbal exchange about it recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. So the investigators think that either the first officer did this in response to the captain's instructions or he did it on his own without the captain knowing. In this case, there seems to be a possibility that the first officer instinctively engaged autopilots for assistance. And the investigators do think there's also a possibility the captain engaged the autopilots himself as well, but they're unable to determine who, but think that either might have engaged the autopilots to regain a normal glide path. It's like that thing where someone's talking to you uh-huh. and they say something and you're not quite sure what they say. So you're just like, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, ever, you ever do that? <laughs> you just kind of nod, yeah. Yeah, or uh-huh. Like you don't hear it, but you don't want to... <laughs> You don't want to. Well, what's worse is whenever someone says something, you say what, and then they say it again, but you still don't hear them. I hate that. You just nod. Yeah, that that's what this kind of makes me think of at 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 this point. Um, There's just a communication breakdown, a communication problem Mm -hmm. here. So the captain then told the first officer two more times that he activated the go lever, but the first officer did not deactivate it. He said to activate it. He, He the captain's telling the first officer that he activated the go lever. So oh, he's, he's okay. Yeah. yeah, this is him correcting him, saying, "Hey, you did this thing that you should." Yeah, correct. But the first officer didn't deactivate it, and in order to deactivate it, the crew would have to had select both lateral and longitudinal modes, not land mode. This is specific about this plane. I'm not a pilot. I've never flown an A300. Um, this is just saying, like, they would explicitly have to go in and change aircraft operating modes in order to deactivate this um, go lever. Okay. And on top of that, just as a note, the report that we're working off of here was translated from Japanese. And as a result, there may be some inconsistencies in the translation and text. And this might be one of those moments. Apologies, we don't uh, read Japanese. We're not fluent in Japanese. So there there may be a little bit lost in translation here uh, as well. Now, a big thank you to Incogni for sponsoring this video. Incogni solves one of the biggest problems we all face today. Our personal data is being shared and used without our permission. Everything from your address and contact details to your shopping habits, email, background, you name it, they probably have it. But did you know that we have the right to request data brokers to delete the information they have on you? Uh, Yeah, we do, but it can be tricky. So Incogni does all that messy work for you automatically. You can protect your privacy by taking your personal data off the market. Simply create an account, tell them whose personal data you'd like to remove, and Incogni will reach out to data brokers on your behalf. They'll request your personal data removal and deal with any objections that might come. So why not give it a try? And the first 100 people who use code BLACKBOXDOWN at incogni.com slash BLACKBOXDOWN get 20% off of Incogni. Again, that's code BLACKBOXDOWN at I-N-C-O-G-N-I dot com slash BLACKBOXDOWN. Take control of your data. It's no secret. I love Native. The thoughtful formulation behind all their products is something I've always loved because they understand it's not just what's on the inside that counts, but also the outside. That's why Native is releasing their deodorant that I know and love in a new improved plastic-free packaging. Native is doing their part to help our earth with their new 100% plastic-free recyclable packaging. When you buy Native's new plastic-free recyclable package deodorant, uh, you're saving 37 grams of plastic. Native is also a proud partner of the 1% for the planet and are committing 1% of their plastic-free deodorant sales to environmental nonprofits. Just like all of Native's other deodorants, their plastic-free deodorant is aluminum and paraben-free, kills odor-causing bacteria, and has 24-hour odor protection to keep you feeling and smelling fresh. With Native, you can choose from 10 cents, including their classic coconut and vanilla, sensitive formulas that are formulated without baking soda, and even unscented. So ready to try plastic-free deodorant? Go to nativedeo.com slash blackboxdown, or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout. Get 20% off your first order. 
That's N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O dot com slash black box down or use promo code black box down at checkout for 20% off your first order. I love riding a bike. I've always really liked it. It's like a sense of freedom about it, especially when you're younger. You know, I think back about that fondly. Uh, but believe it or not, I'm not in as good of a shape as I used to be when I was younger. So now I get intimidated by the thought of having to ride a bike. However, you know what really helps with that? An e-bike. Uh, so finally, there's an e-bike made for everyone. Electric e-bikes. They're the fastest growing e-bike company in the U.S. It's easy to see why. Electric e-bikes are affordable, customizable, ship-free, fully assembled. Plus, they quickly fold in half. No bike rack or truck required. Leave the car at home, save on gas, save the planet when you explore and commute on electric e-bikes. First of all, I cannot stress enough about how convenient it is that it ships fully assembled. You just, I, I just opened up the box and I unfolded the bike, boom, ready to go. And uh, it's really great. It's really fun to ride. Uh, the fact that it's electric uh, really helps me and my out of shape body <laughs> because I can just rely on that electric uh, charge to to carry me around. It's tons of fun. I love riding it all around, uh, running errands, going to grocery stores, going to restaurants, picking up food. Uh, sometimes I find it's faster than taking my car, you know, having to look for a parking spot and worry about uh, traffic. It's, I, I don't know, for me personally. I love taking the bike uh, whenever possible. I find myself making excuses to go out and ride uh, my electric e-bike whenever possible. And electric bikes are surprisingly affordable compared to other e-bikes on the market. They're adjustable, customizable, so they're comfortable even for people who normally don't ride bikes. Uh, they fold up, ship-free. They come pre-assembled and pre-charged. You're on the road in no time. That's what I said. I couldn't believe how simple it was. Uh, the battery's hidden away. There's an LCD display featuring speed, range, and adjustable power level. Thousands of rave five-star reviews. Count me as one of those. Uh, you can cover up to 45 miles at up to 28 miles per hour on just a four to six hour charge. Way more eco-friendly than a car. You can explore the great outdoors or the city while keeping the air clean. They got different bike models and accessories. They provide optimal comfort, storage, and safety. So join the affordable e-bike revolution. Go to electricebikes.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN. Get a free foldable bike lock with any bike purchase. The bike lock's great, by the way. It's uh, it's, I, it's just another really cool thing. It just attaches right into the frame. Easy to put on, easy to take off. Love it. Anyway, that's a free bike lock when you use code BLACKBOXDOWN at L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-E-S.com, electricebikes.com, code BLACKBOXDOWN. The crew, you know, like we talked about here, we had selected land mode, which was not the correct mode, so the go-around mode remained engaged. The procedure for performing an approach by disengaging go-around mode and then engaging land mode is unusual. However, the fact that the crew did not change modes as intended seems to have been due to their lack of understanding of the automatic flight system. So remember, this incident, like I said, happened in 1994. This mm. is around the time where cockpit automation is really starting to take off. So like a lot of, a lot of functions are being computerized and automated, and it's kind of a new, a new world for pilots. So... This is all new automation, so maybe there was still a lack of understanding about how these automations worked uh, in the cockpit. Yeah, it's like some some planes they've flown in have it, some don't, and they're still kind of like in that middle ground, kind of figuring it right. out. Right, and on top of that, so the the captain did have a lot of experience, a lot of hours that like we talked uh -huh. about. He had previously most of his hours were in the Boeing seven forty seven, which is a different plane, obviously. So these systems in the A three hundred were different so even though he had a lot of hours most of them were in a different plane so like the automation in this plane is very different than what he's used to because obviously boeing makes the 747 airbus makes the a300 two totally different manufacturers two different approaches to you know cockpit design so mm -hmm. there there is you know even though he's an experienced pilot there is a learning curve to learning the system specific to this plane just trying to yeah. give a little more background here as to what's going on so 
Because the airplane was in go-around mode, the autopilot attempted to move the elevators and the trimmable horizontal stabilizer toward the nose-up direction, but the first officer was also pushing down on his controls. And the elevators and trimmable horizontal stabilizer, these are the, if you look at the tail of a plane, it's the horizontal part, like the two fins that stick out from the Mm -hmm. tail on either side. So the go-around mode sets those to climb, but remember, they're trying to land, and the first officer's pushing down, trying to land. So they're kind of fighting each other and the actions are canceling each other out. Mm-hmm. And the, this is why the flight leveled off for a moment. Then at that point, that's when the first officer reduced the thrust levers, which caused the speed and nose up tendency to decrease, which allowed them to descend. So when you pull the throttle back, even though the elevators are telling the plane to climb with less power, there's less lift. So mm-hmm. the speed goes down and they, they actually do descend for a bit. However, while this is going on, the trimmable horizontal stabilizer continued to move in the nose-up position. And when the flight was passing through 880 feet, it reached its maximum nose-up position. Oh. So I'm, I'm, if I say THS, that's the trimmable horizontal stabilizer, by okay. the way. So while the THS was being in maximum nose-up, the first officer is still pushing down on the elevator. So they're, And remember, their, their power is decreased. So the airplane's still descending, but it's also pitching up and increasing the angle of attack. Uh. So when they cross through 700 feet... The autopilots were disengaged, but the THS remained at maximum nose-up position. So they have very low throttle. Yeah. The first officer's pushing down, but the elevator's trimmed up. So even though they're slowing down and descending, the nose is continuing to pitch up more and more because of the trimmable horizontal stabilizer. Yeah. When the autopilots were disconnected, the control wheel was able to move the elevators down a little bit more, and the pitch angle and angle of attack started to decrease also. But a few seconds later... Forward pressure on the control wheel was loosened a little, and the pitch angle and angle of attack increased again. Mm. When the aircraft crossed through 570 feet, the airspeed was at 127 knots. The EPRS, like the engine output, was at 1.04, and the pitch angle was at 8.6 degrees, and the angle of attack exceeded the threshold angle of 11.5 degrees, and the slats and flaps were at 30 degrees, or were 30 and 40, respectively. Uh, I keep mentioning angle of attack, Mm. and... Uh, I, you know, I, I want to, you know, we've talked about angle of attack extensively and in case we have a new listener, welcome. Uh, I wanna, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I do, I do want to explain what that is. So angle of attack is the angle of the wing relative to the wind that's hitting it. So if the wind's hitting the wing and the wing's like dead on going straight into the wind, you would say it's at zero degrees. I didn't know it was relative to the wind, not like the horizon. Right. It's, it is relative to the wind because huh. the wind yeah. is what's providing the lift. That makes sense. I just didn't thought about it. Yeah. It's And why would you, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it seems like you would. You, you, it makes sense that it's the ground because we are creatures who live on the ground. That's our experience yeah. with the world. But it's relative to the wind because that's what's actually providing the lift uh, to the wing, which is why it's possible to, in theory, stall at just about any speed mm. because no matter how fast you're going, if the the wind, it's more about the wing or the, the lifting, yeah, the lift on the wing exceeding that critical angle of attack against the wind, not about how fast the plane is going. Mm. Anyway, that's your quick, very ugly explanation of angle of attack. Um, <laughs> so with all of these parameters that I talked about, the speed, the engine power, the pitch angle, angle of attack, slats and flaps, all of these activated the alpha floor function. So that's an automatic protection. When the alpha floor is triggered, it automatically commands toga thrust on both engines, which is takeoff go around, regardless of the position of the thrust levers. The increase in power due to the outer trim condition and activation of the alpha floor function 
generated a pitch up moment. So, you know, the computer and the automation in the plane realized, you know, realized these parameters are a little out of whack and it triggers the takeoff go around thrust. And as a result, with more thrust, they start pitching up a bit. Mm -hmm. After the autopilot was disconnected, the first officer said, sir, I still cannot push it down and then throttle latched again. According to the investigators, up until this moment, it appears the captain had not fully grasped the flight situation. The captain then decided to take over the controls, and at this point, he still seemed to be unaware that the Trimble horizontal stabilizer was at the nose-up limit. Like, he wasn't aware how bad of a position they were in? Right. He didn't know that essentially the plane was fighting the first officer trying to climb, while yeah. the first officer's trying to push down and, and land. Immediately after taking control, the captain reduced the thrust levers, which leads investigators to believe that when he took control, although he was unaware of the unusually strong resistive force of the control wheel, he still intended to make a landing. Mm. Because he was unable to stop the pitch angle, he decided to go around and called out go lever while increasing the thrust to full thrust. So when he takes over, he's like, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and land this. He realizes that, you know, the, the plane's fighting and doesn't want to nose down. And then he's like, okay, we're going to go around. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I from his perspective at that point, right? Right. Yeah, like at this point, you know, when he takes over, he's like, he's realizing and that's when he starts getting caught up as to exactly how the plane's behaving. Yeah. In a normal go-around procedure, the pilot flying would call for go-around flaps as he operates the go lever, and the pilot who's not flying moves the flaps and slats one step up. However, in this case, the correct procedure was not followed. After the go lever call out, it took seven seconds before initial movement of the flaps and slats lever. The flaps and slats should have been moved from 40 to 30 and 20 to 15, but the investigators think that the lever was moved to either 0, 15 or 0, 0, and then moved back to 15, 15, and the landing gear was left down. So instead of like stair-stepping them back, uh -huh. they were dumped all the way to zero and then moved back up a little bit, oh. which is not good. When you are flying and, you know, you have your flaps out, they're generating, you know, a lot of lift. That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Ideally, you stair-step them down so you don't lose all of that extra lift at once. If you go from fully extended like that to zero, that's really dangerous. You're you, gonna, oh, you like a thump. Right, like. you're going to lose a lot of lift immediately. So due to the alpha floor function and the increase in thrust, a large pitch-up movement began, and the pitch angle did not stop increasing, and the speed began to decrease from 137 knots. So there's three ways the captain could have reduced the increasing pitch angle. You could push the control wheel, mm -hmm. regain trim, and to reduce thrust. Under the conditions of steep climb and continued decrease of speed, it seems the captain hesitated to reduce the thrust. However, the speed had decreased to 115 knots and the pitch angle had increased to 40.3 degrees. So that's a really extreme that's, angle, by the way. It's like really up. Like that's just right. like nose up to the sky. And uh, right? Yeah, yeah. I assume at 40.3 degrees, they even though they were pretty close to the ground, they probably couldn't see the ground anymore. You know, they were like uh -huh. oh. looking up at the sky. And they're really close to the ground right now. Right. This is giving me, I'm getting anxious. I'm like, my stomach is in my, my palm. My palms are sweating, Chris. <laughs> Mom's spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed the captain did end up reducing thrust, but then either the captain or first officer pushed them forward again in an attempt to recover lost speed. From the flight data recorder records, it is then estimated that the aircraft stalled then descended steeply with a rapidly changing roll angle and impacted the ground. It, the flaps and slats were adjusted all at once. Did it say who did it? I don't think they know uh, definitively. Uh -huh. uh, but that being said, I think in this scenario, based on everything that's going around, it seems like the, it would be the first officer who's doing that. Oh, even though he didn't, he didn't call out for it, but the, and he did it incorrectly. Correct. Like in a yeah, panicked, the, like, the, well, it, if they were doing it correctly, they would have notched it. Basically, yeah. they would have notched it down one setting. But it seems like 
whoever did it, probably the first officer, moved it all the way to zero, then like moved it back up like mm-hmm. one notch from uh, zero. You know, I've been taking flight lessons for a while and that's like, yeah, you know, even on like a small Cessna, like I learn on, mm-hmm. that's like a cardinal sin. You do not go from full flaps to zero flaps. Like that is a sure way to stall or it's mm-hmm. not defended, but it's a sure way to get yourself into a lot of trouble very quickly. Like the- when, when even on a small plane, when you have full flaps, you stair step them up. You go from full like to like one less than full, then you confirm that you have like a positive rate of climb. Then you stair step one more down. You confirm that you have a positive rate of climb. You like <laughs> stair step it back to zero. You don't yeah. ever dump it to zero. That would be awful. And they're so close to the ground at this point. Right. And if it was the first officer and and the captain didn't know that that was happening, all of a sudden it's like the plane just drops without his knowledge. Yeah, and, and but in this case, because of the weird configuration of the plane, it ends up pitching up strangely. Uh, and that's because of the position the trimmable horizontal stabilizer was in. It's just, there, there were so many weird conflicting configurations going on in this plane that it begins operating really bizarrely. And that's what happened here. Mm. Without the extra lift from those flaps, then it just starts pitching up because the only control surface that's really acting at that point would be the trimmable horizontal stabilizer, which is still trying to get them to nose up. Investigators also found that there was a service bulletin that could be related to this accident. On June 24th, 1993, Airbus issued service bulletin SBA300-22-6021. This service bulletin concerned a modification to the automatic flight system, which disengages the autopilot when a force in excess of 15 kilograms, which is about 33 pounds, is applied to the control wheel in pitch axis during a flight in the go-around mode above 400 feet. However, Airbus marked this uh, service bulletin as recommended and not mandatory. Therefore, China Airlines decided to do this service bulletin when it was time to service their flight control computers, and there was not an opportunity to do this before the flight occurred. So what this service bulletin is saying is that if it's basically like a software update for the automation in the plane, Uh where if a flight is in go-around mode above 400 feet, and one of the pilots is moving the control wheel and gives it more than 33 pounds of force, it'll disengage the autopilot. It'll basically override the autopilot and have the human pilots take control of the plane. That, and that's a new update. Right, that would be a software update. Because before the update, n- the humans could not disengage the automatic flight system by giving control wheel input. Hmm. They would have to go through that, those steps that we talked about before where they have to go into the different modes. So presumably what could have happened here is, you know, the, well, this would, this could have in theory saved this flight because the pilot, you know, I kept saying the first officer was fighting, Mm -hmm. trying to nose down post software update that would have overridden that trimmable horizontal stabilizer. And, you know, they would have actually nosed down. Oh, so this is before, sorry, this, this is before the software update, right? The software update had not been done on this plane because it was only flagged as recommended, not mandatory. Oh, see, I thought. You were saying it had been updated, but they maybe they weren't aware of it. No, it had not. This plane had not been updated yet, despite the fact that this service bulletin had come out almost a year before this accident. Since it was recommended not mandatory, the airline uh-huh. thought, oh, "We'll just wait till it's time to service the computers, and we'll update it then." It seems like that's one of those things you get communicate like little updates, like on how the plane controls. You got to really communicate all that yeah. stuff. Um, and then, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but to, to make matters a little worse, uh-huh. the, you know, I, like I mentioned, the captain of the, of this flight had previously flown 747s and, you know, he had moved over to these Airbus A300s in the simulator he had trained in, it behaved like 
after the software update. It behaved in a oh. way where if you if they applied the pressure, it would override the autopilot. Uh-huh. That was so his simulator training taught him that, but then this plane did not behave in that manner because it didn't have the software update. Mm. So that's just like an additional layer, of layer, confusion. right? Like a, like another possible or another thing that may have possibly contributed to this accident. Like we talk about all the time, it's rare that we talk about an incident and it's super cut and dry. It's super. This one thing caused the accident. Mm-hmm. It's usually layers, like all these little things line up and you, you know result in uh, an accident. So, of course, you know, there's some causes that the commission comes up with here. Uh, and they determine the following factors as a chain or combination thereof which uh, caused the accident. The first officer inadvertently triggered the go lever. It's considered that the design of the go lever contributed to this. Normal operation of the thrust lever allows the possibility of an inadvertent triggering of the go lever. Like we said, it's just kind of in a weird position. We'll post a picture on social mm-hmm. media. Give us a follow at Black Box Down Pod if you want to see what it looks like. The crew engaged the autopilots while go-around mode was still engaged and continued the approach. The first officer continued pushing the control wheel in accordance with the captain's instructions despite its strong resistive force in order to continue the approach. The movement of the trimmable horizontal stabilizer conflicted with that of the elevators, causing an abnormal outer trim condition. So, like we said, the trimmable horizontal stabilizer is trying to nose it up. The first officer is trying to pitch down, (laughs) causing the elevators to try to go down. So it's like getting conflicting inputs basically yeah the captain the first officer did not sufficiently understand the flight director mode change and the autopilot override function it is considered unclear descriptions of the automatic flight system in the flight crew operating manual prepared by the aircraft manufacturer contributed to this so it's just it was a confusing system or confusing flow to get out of uh, the mode that they were in and they didn't maybe fully understand it the captain's judgment of the flight situation while continuing approach was inadequate, control takeover was delayed, and appropriate actions were not taken. So maybe the captain should, you know, he didn't fully appreciate the situation and probably should have taken over a little earlier. The alpha floor function was activated. This was incompatible with the abnormal out-of-trim situation and generated a large pitch-up moment. This narrowed the range of selection for recovery operations and reduced the time allowance for such operations. The captain and first officer's awareness of the flight conditions after the captain took over controls and during the recovery operation were inadequate, respectively. The crew coordination between the captain and first officer was inadequate. That's the one you really hate to see. I feel like that's a recurring theme. No matter what the cause of Uh an incident, it seems like there's always either poor coordination or, or poor communication. You know, if your crew's coordinating and communicating appropriately... Lots of times you can avert an incident. You know, when yeah. that communication and coordination breaks down, that's when you're bound to have a problem. And that's that crew resource management thing that's that you it. love. That's CRM. It. <laughs> it changed the aviation industry, Chris. I'm a big fan of it. <laughs> you know, I am too, Gus, at, at this point. I'm I think a big fan too. You said, you said something. Uh, we, we did an episode some time ago talking about crew resource management. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about uh, communicating and making sure, you know, you're on the same page. And you said something really funny at the time when we recorded that about how it would also be very applicable to relationships <laughs> <laughs> just to, like, make sure you and your partner are communicating well and on the same page and stuff. And that's always stuck with me. It's, I think that's really funny. Anyway, I got two more uh, causes here. The modification prescribed in service bulletin SBA 300-22-6021 had not been incorporated into the aircraft. The aircraft manufacturer did not categorize SBA 322-6021 as mandatory, which would have given it the highest priority. The airworthiness authority of the nature of design and manufacture did not promptly issue an airworthiness directive pertaining to the implementation of the service bulletin. 
So those last two are just really about that mm-hmm. service bulletin. And maybe it should have been mandatory. So, of course, there's uh, recommendations. As of May 3rd, 1994, the authorities ordered China Airlines to complete a modification to the flight control computers promptly in accordance with that service bulletin. As of May 7th, 1994, the authorities ordered China Airlines to provide supplementary training to A300 pilots, reevaluate their proficiency, and submit pilot training and reevaluation to authorities. Uh, and Airbus recategorized the service bulletin to mandatory. So really, it's like telling China Airlines, hey, apply the service bulletin, make sure your pilots are trained, and Airbus, make sure everyone, every airline operating this plane absolutely has to mandatorily update the software. Yeah, no, no more waffling on this. Do it. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely <laughs> just do it. It, it. Yeah, it's weird to me. It seems like such a critical update. It's, it's weird to me that it was not mandatory to begin with. Maybe, maybe it's because it would require more training, like training, and they wanted to let people do it in due time. Maybe, uh, but you know, that's I don't know. It, there, I, I'm sure it's something like that, right? I'm sure it's a, it's a cost thing, right? That's always what it boils down to. Someone's trying to save money or take a shortcut. Regardless. It became mandatory after that. And there were recommendations for China Airlines, understanding of the design concept of advanced technology aircraft and establishment of the operational concept for such aircraft, reinforcement of education and training programs for controls and operations which crews rarely experience in daily flight, such as mode changes and manual overrides during auto flight, establishment of measures which allow crews to easily recall the controls and operations in flight, Create methods for enhancing crews' understanding of important technical information on flight operations issued by aircraft manufacturers. Take measures to ensure that through education and training, crews do not activate the goal lever of the A300 inadvertently and they take appropriate actions if this occurs. Better task sharing between captain and first officer. China Airlines should standardize the terms used for instruction, response, confirmation, and execution of operations in order to ensure that crews can have appropriate situational awareness of the flight. Mm-hmm. China Airlines should improve the procedures for mutual confirmation by crews of operation and monitoring of the automatic flight system mode changes of advanced technology aircraft. So just better, those last two are really just like better confirmation and making sure you're checking. Right, communication. And then there were three uh, recommendations here directed towards Airbus. Airbus should review the autopilot disconnect and manual override functions by which crews can safely control the aircraft irrespective of flight altitude or phase by applying a force exceeding a certain level on the control column. So it's just the thing that that service bulletin did. The human pilot should be able to move the control column and deactivate autopilot that way instead of having to go through and push a bunch of buttons and change modes. You know, this really is the fundamental question that we still grapple with to this day. You know, Mm. who do you trust? Is it the computer? Is it the software? Or is it the human sitting at the controls? You know, (laughs) which is going to have better awareness of the overall picture and do the right thing. Uh, You know, even when we talked about like that Air France flight, Mm -hmm. Air France 447 forever ago, we talked about, you know, the autopilot going into alternate law, you know, do the people understand what that means? It's there's, it's such like autopilot, you know, I think if you're not an enthusiast, you don't think about it. If you're just a passenger, you think autopilot's just like a button that uh you know the cap that the pilots push and that it does everything. When in reality, it's very complicated with many different modes, like we've talked about, a lot of different nuance, and there can be a lot of different functions it covers. And ultimately, do you trust the person or the computer? And when? Right. Yeah. When do you so, trust them? Yeah. So this was a case of the humans should be able to override the autopilot by giving you know enough force on the control column. So if they had done that update, this probably wouldn't have happened. Correct. Because then, you know, if the first officer had been nosing down, he would have overridden that trimmable horizontal stabilizer 
that would have deactivated and they would have come in and landed without a problem. Like he, it may have resisted him a bit at first, but once he exceeded that 15 kilograms of force, mm-hmm. it would have turned off and then he would have taken over and continued manually flying. And, and the first officer, had he been trained on the uh, Boeing mostly as well? So that it was like also a different system for him? I don't know his background as well. I don't think so. I think this was, I don't think he had previously flown another large plane of this size. Mm. Uh, I don't know what he had flown before this. I only know about the captain's background. Okay. So uh, again, we're still in the recommendations to Airbus. Consider incorporating a function to prevent an abnormal out-of-trim condition from arising from a prolonged override operation of the autopilot by acting on the pitch axis via the control column, which moves the THS in the opposite direction of the elevator movement. So again, this is just like tweaking the software to make sure that a condition like this doesn't happen again where the trimble horizontal stabilizer and the elevator are in disagreement and moving in different directions. Mm-hmm. Study warning and pilot recognition enhancement functions which alert the pilots directly and actively to those situations which arise when the THS enters or is close to an out-of-trim situation or when it continues to move for more than a certain period of time, regardless of autopilot engagement or disengagement. So kind of try to figure out like, hey, is there a way that you can have an alert which lets the pilots know when something like this happens where the triple horizontal stabilizer is active at maximum value for a long period of time against their what they're trying yeah. to get it to do. It's like, hey, there's you're, you're like hitting the brake and the gas at the same time. Kind of like yeah. the, not exactly, but... Yeah, but it's like when you're giving two different inputs that are kind of canceling each other out. The, the, the problem, you know, it seems like, yeah, let's, you know, do that. Why not? But the problem becomes like, are you then overloading mm-hmm. even more warnings and lights and, and, you know, things going on that could potentially distract? You know, that's why they say just study it to see, you know, what the feasibility yeah. is. Japanese prosecutors declined to pursue charges of professional negligence on the airline senior management as it was difficult to call into question the criminal responsibility of the four individuals because aptitude levels achieved through training at the carrier were similar to those at other airlines. Hmm. So kind of saying like they really can't call culpability to the management because the pilots, their aptitude, it was similar to other airlines. You know, they they weren't specifically negligent when compared to all of their peer airlines. And and, and up the recommended update was recommended. Right, not, not mandatory. Not, yeah. Yeah. A class action lawsuit was filed against China Airlines and Airbus for compensation. In December 2003, the Nagoya District Court ordered China Airlines to pay a combined 5 billion yen to 232 people, but cleared Airbus of liability. Uh, and, and if you notice that year, that is, you know, over nine years after the accident, just to talk about oh. like, yeah. <laughs> how long that takes. And and also for reference, today, so this was, you know, obviously almost 19 years ago. Today, 5 billion yen is about $37 million. Back then, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head what that conversion was back then, but it's probably safe to say it was probably between 45 and $50 million um, back at that time. Some of the bereaved and survivors felt that the compensation was inadequate and a further class action suit was filed and ultimately settled in April 2007, when the aircraft apologized for the accident and provided additional compensation. So even that took an additional four years after, you know, the, the, yeah. or almost an additional four years, uh, three and a half years after the, the first finding. On April 26, 2014, 300 mourners gathered in Kasugai Aichi Prefecture for a memorial to the crash on the 20th anniversary of the crash. Uh, there is one of the, like, footnote I do want to mention about mm-hmm. this incident. You know, we like we said... This was the time when 
computers were really starting to take over. This was April 1994. This is also coincidentally the same time when digital flight recorders started rolling out into planes, replacing those old foil systems that we've talked about before. Oh, so like there was this was. I yeah. don't know if this was the first incident where they used a digital flight data recorder. I don't want to say that by any uh-huh. stretch, but this is like kind of a, a turning point where digital flight recorders began being more prevalent in planes and in it's, flights. Yeah, it just sounds like this is that, I don't know, technological jump period, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like yeah. everything is going digital. They're getting all these autopilot, like computers are taking over. Right, yeah. And, and uh, like, they're, they're really helping assist pilots in flying the plane. And those, those old systems we talked about, I have no idea how those things worked. Like we said before, <laughs> it was like a piece of foil with a needle that etched onto it. Uh, how? Oh. Like, well, that's just wild to me. And now, you know, of course, we talk, you know, in some of the more recent incidents, we talk about, of course, digital flight data recorders, quick access recorders that are basically like USB sticks that they can pull out and look at. And, you know, it's just much more modern and much uh, more durable than it used to be. Yeah, I, it is a completely uh, different um comparison but i just think about like editing on a computer with nles versus like actually cutting and taping together film yeah. to edit a, yeah. that's a non-linear editor <laughs> yeah. an nle for our uh our, our non-editor right. listeners uh that, that also shows you elp editors like uh or ela <laughs> editors like acronyms uh anyway that's it for uh this episode as always like i said I do want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. I'll post uh, an image of the Go Trigger by the throttle uh, so you can see what it looks like. I'm also curious, you know, I want to get a little more feedback from uh, from our listeners. If you have any questions or there's anything you'd like us to cover, send a message uh, on social media or send us an email to BlackBoxDownPod at gmail.com. Uh, we may do an episode in the future where we talk uh, or we answer, you know, questions. If we see, like, Questions that people really seem to want answered, we may uh, cover that in a future like Q and A episode. Yeah, or even just like talk about different things that you, you want us to talk about. Yeah, and it also may help me figure out if I need to highlight certain things more. Like in this episode, we went back and recovered what angle of attack is, and even you learned it's relative to the the wind. Yeah, like it's it's just a good reminder that you know we should not take things for granted, and and yeah. we we, not, we need to do to explain some things. But that's it. Uh, we'll be back again uh, next week with another episode. Yeah. Oh, and share share uh, the show with your friends, please. Yeah. And, oh, we also have some new merch. Yeah, you can check that out uh, on our link tree. Thank you, Chris, for setting that up uh, on our social media. Or you can go to store.roosterteeth.com and look for Black Box Down into the podcast section. All right. Thank you. Bye.